and welcome to the Idlepa podcast, where we explore how the presence, promise, and power of the kingdom of God are being realized in all walks of life. Your host is T.M. Moore, the principal of the Fellowship of Idlepa, and I'm Rusty Rabin. T.M., in preparing for our guest and topic today, I was reminded of the uh, Old Testament prophet Micah, Micah 6.8, familiar verse. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Yeah, yeah, it's that do justly part that I think very often gets confused and that eludes not just Christian people, but people in general. Mm. We think of justice, we think of something that happens remote from us rather than something that we're called to. And I think our guest today, Dr. Mark Moland, brother in our fellowship, and also the Associate Professor of History and Political Science at Laterno University, going to help us in this matter to understand this a little bit better. So, Mark, welcome. We're glad you could be with us today. Glad to be with you as well. So this is an area that you have been interested in for a number of years now, ever since you were studying with the Colson Center and being a centurion, coming out of your time in the Coast Guard, retiring from that, and looking for what God wanted to do. He started putting this notion of justice as something that you might be able to make a contribution to. Can you give us a little history of how you got involved in this whole part of thinking about the doing justly part of the life of faith? Certainly. Thank you, TM. So when I was in the Coast Guard, so I served for 21 years in the Coast Guard, and my Christian faith and my Coast Guard service started at pretty much the same time. So right before I became an officer in the Coast Guard, I had given my life to Christ. And so one of the issues I started wrestling with is, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian in the Coast Guard? What does it mean to kind of live this Christian life through my vocation? And as I looked at how we served in the Coast Guard, you know, the question is, okay, what are we actually trying to accomplish here? Are we just out doing these individual missions? But what's the bigger picture? And the picture that was developing for, the, for my service in the Coast Guard was this holistic view of both security and safety, mm. that the Coast Guard is out there in order to ensure the safe flow of commerce, to seek and save those who are lost, to protect from... Uh, in, individuals who intend harm. And the other factor about the Coast Guard is the Coast Guard is so incredibly small. It's smaller than the New York City Police Force. And so when the Coast Guard acts, the Coast Guard has to do it in collaboration and coordination with all manner of other agencies from volunteers to you know, federal, state, and, and local law enforcement, emergency management agencies. So it's always this community effort. And it just struck me how there was this parallel between the call of the Christian to be in a body seeking the good of their community and this work that I was doing repeatedly. So when I, when I went to retire from the Coast Guard, my desire was to teach in Christian higher education. And I had the, the wonderful door open to serve at Letourneau University and serve in their criminal justice department. And as I looked at this curriculum for criminal justice, the question I asked myself is, okay, where do I begin to ground this in scripture? And my immediate thought went to, to Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, 
where he tells the people that they need to seek the good of the city to which they are called and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its good, you too will find good. And that word good is translated welfare and peace, but that root word there is shalom, that all abiding wholeness and goodness, as Neil Planiga described it, shalom is the way things ought to be. Now, before we get too far into shalom, I want to back up just a little bit and put that word justice on the table here for the three of us to consider. Uh, if uh, there's not a day goes by that we don't hear some cry that says there's either no justice or we want justice. And I think the word justice has been bandied about in so many different circles and by so many different people with so many different intentions that it's starting to lose its real essential meaning. How, how we got to this place, Mark, where justice is pretty much whatever I say it is when I want it. It's interesting. I teach a class called Justice and Human Rights. And in the class, I ask the students three broad questions. What are just, what's justice, what are rights, and what are human rights? And when I ask the students what are, what's justice, they say, oh, yeah, I know what justice is. And then they have to put that pen to the paper, and it stops them. Yeah. I can imagine it does. <laughs> because we use the word, and we have this sense inside ourselves that there's something wrong and that needs to be put right. But we can't necessarily articulate, you know, what it is unless we draw the view back and say, okay, you know, how do we understand what's wrong? How do we understand what's right? Yeah. Well, in a society such as ours today, when those terms have lost their absolute rootings and have become so relativized, so individualized, so psychologized, that, that really confuses the nature of justice so that it would seem to me that it's difficult for anybody to really decide whether or not they've received the justice they've been seeking or that they were due. Yeah, and, and that, that root idea of you know, justice is what you are due, uh, is at the core of, of this, well, you know, I've been wrong, I'm do something. It's just the core of an eye for an eye. You know, there's been a wrong, there needs to be some kind of, of recompense. But how do we understand, you know, what is due to an individual? You know, is that is that real challenge? You know, when you look at, you know, the idea of, you know, justice as righteousness in the Old Testament, that, that Hebrew word, tzedakah, uh, and that I, that's also the word that's used for, you know, giving charity, for giving, for giving alms. You know, this idea that uh, justice and righteousness is something that I do. Like two sides of the same coin. Right. And so I need to be involved in doing justice and doing justice and making sure something is due to my neighbor. You know, the problem is if we take the idea of justice and really just look at how I interpret my rights, how I interpret what is due to me, isolated from the rest of my community, you know, it becomes a very vengeful seeking. You know, you could wrong me. And so I take it, I get vengeance or what I call justice by taking out your entire family. When we need to think about justice, we have to start thinking it in terms of 
you know, what is this in restoring our right relationships in the community? How are we loving God and loving our neighbor in this act of justice? Mm-hmm. Mark, let me throw something out here, if I may, that may be a big can of worms that, <laughs> but I, I'm, uh, I participate in a, a, a book reading group that is right now reading a book titled Be the Bridge by Natasha Morrison. And uh, it talks about racial reconciliation, racial justice. And the question came up in our last meeting together just earlier this week about uh, African-Americans and all that has happened to them over several hundred years Mm -hmm. of slavery and then the aftermath of the Civil War and up to the present day. And the question is, how do they get justice? How does the how do how do the African American people get justice? What is due to them? You were just talking about things that are due to folks in getting justice. Is that a question? Maybe just kind of touch on a little bit. How how are you? How are you thinking with, you know, Black Lives Matter and so much in the in the news these days? Uh, how, how would you suggest we view uh, justice in this regard? The uh, challenge in this situation is that question of what is due. And you, you look at that and there have been historic wrongs. Anthony Bradley of King's College has made a, a, a very compelling discussion of a need for a specific commission to look at the wrongs of under Jim Crow and figuring out a specific economic reparation for those who were impacted by Jim Crow using what are called the Chicago principles of post-war conflict. The real challenge here is what is due. And when we think of injustice, you know, one of the ways that I start trying to process this is is going back to the idea of sin. And Neil Planiga in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be a Brevery of Sin, talks about sin in in terms of shalom and the way things ought to be. And he says that sin then is a culpable breaking of shalom. And that you can be culpable of an offense, both by direct commission and then also by negligence. And there's that idea of culpable. So when when you're looking at how do you seek justice, you know, there's that question of, okay, who's culpable? How are they culpable? How also does this specific act then restore shalom? Tim Keller uh, published a, uh, a piece on Cardis just a, a few days ago, where he's talking about one of the challenges we're facing right now is this fading of forgiveness and how forgiveness goes along with this practice of seeking justice and seeking reconciliation. And that we need to be able to have some way of bringing us back into relationship through this, not just saying this is due to me, 
But the next question is, how are we restoring our right relationships with each other in that process? And not just saying, okay, this is the wrong, here's the way it is restored by money. Because you have to then how restore this relationship because if you don't restore the relationship, uh, you can still have this lingering a feeling of unrightness. Here's the challenge, though, today, as I as I see it, it's it's ironic that the sixth book, seventh book in the Bible, is called the Book of Judges, because judges implies an ability to judge, make sound judgments, achieve justice, and yet the recurrent theme of that book is every man did what was right in his own eyes. Every man was a judge unto himself, and they were all judging wrongly. It seems to me, Mark, in many ways, we, we've kind of arrived at that place in society where every, every, not necessarily every person, but certainly every group or what some might say every tribe reserves the right to define the terms of justice for themselves and expects everybody to agree and conform to that. Is it really possible to sort of cast a safety net of shalom over all these varied tribes, groups, and, and, and all their different views of, of justice? Well, this is why I, I talk about criminal justice as the shalom seeking discipline, because you know, in your daily practice, you know, it, if I want to impose shalom on the entire nation, we're gonna have constant fighting and big, people are gonna say, well, I don't, I don't like that definition. Hey, you're imposing on this without my, uh, without my agreement. Hey, I haven't bought into that. Shalom begins with individual relationships. You know, shalom begins with me being right with my neighbor. Okay, so that means that justice is not just a function of courts, legislatures, and law enforcement. Justice is an individual concern for all of us. Absolutely. And that's, is that kind of like you referenced Jeremiah a moment ago uh, and seeking the good of the city? I, I hear the term or the phrase, the common good, mm. talked about uh, a lot where uh, politicians, it, it is said, should be working for the common good rather than all the fighting and squabbling they do. Even Christians should be a presence in their communities. I, I guess it's kind of like what you were saying was the message of Jeremiah, being a presence for the common good wherever we are. I, is that an aspect of justice? Oh, absolutely is. And it, and it begins just as Jeremiah is saying, is, you know, you're starting where you're at. You know, that letter is saying, in, in the context of that letter, the people who had been brought into exile were saying, okay, we're just going to sit back and we're going to wait until God judges them and takes us home. And that wasn't God's intention. So Jeremiah is sending this letter to give them instructions on what to do while waiting for the next 70 years. And he's saying, you know, start where you are. You build a house, you plant a garden have your children get married and have other children. Seek the good of the city to which you're in. You know, it starts with one spot and works out. When we think and, and in terms no, of the great there was no requirement that the Babylonians should agree with what was good. Right. But that the Israelites should know it, understand it, 
and should exude it and practice it in relationship to their Babylonian neighbors. Right. And, and as you are developing this community and building these relationships, it is going to continue to spread. You know, just as when we talk about evangelism and the Great Commission, we start where you're at. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. You don't immediately focus on the uttermost parts of the earth. We, um, in writing, there is this idea called the ladder of abstraction. And that when you're writing, you know, you can go to the top of the ladder and talk about very ambiguous concepts. But in order to connect the reader, you have to go down to the bottom of that ladder and talk right. about specific things. That's where right. you can talk about people and stories and whatnot. We do the same thing when we get into the area of justice, because we get so focused that top of that letter, we need justice, we need reconciliation, and yet we neglect the things that are right there that we can do something with, which is my relationship with my neighbor, my neighbor down the street, the person I am working with uh, at Kroger, the person I, I, I sit beside at church. If those relationships are not right, we're not going to be able to have this broader sense of global justice because I, things are not right in our backyard. You, I hear you issuing a call to Christians in every facet of life to wake up to the need to recover a biblical sense of justice and to begin practicing that shalom in our own life spaces. Rusty, is that, is that what we're hearing here so far? Well, I think so, that uh, it's up to each one of us. We have a part to play. It's not uh, somebody else, uh, but it's it starts right here at home. Uh, it's kind of like the illustration, I guess. I, I heard once about revival where somebody was wanting, was praying that God would begin revival, and he took a piece of chalk, drew a circle on the floor, on and stepped inside that circle and said, Lord, please start the revival in this circle. Rusty, you mentioned the issue of racial reconciliation. One of the most powerful moments of reconciliation that I have ever participated in uh, was when I lived in Memphis, Tennessee. And Memphis as a city uh, is very much seems frozen in that moment in April of 1868 when Dr. King was assassinated. And I was attending a church in the suburbs. It was a mostly white church, white pastor. And one Sunday morning, uh, he got up in the pulpit, tears in his eyes and said, you know, I've been pastor here for five years. And there is an African-American church that if we throw a softball hard enough, we'll knock out their window. Because I, up until this week, I had never once spoken to their pastor. And so I called him up and I said, I need your forgiveness because I have neglected you as my brother. And the pastor who was there said, no, brother, I need to ask you your forgiveness as well because I never once thought about talking to you or your predecessor. And as they met for lunch, they discovered that both of them had been missionaries to Brazil. Both of them knew the same people in Brazil and they found out that the deacons from both of our churches served the same ministry just on different Sundays. So they say, well, why don't we work together? We just have half our deacons do this Sunday and half our deacons do the next. And we work together as a team and begin 
developing a relationship between who we are. And that relationships continue now for you know, well over 10 years. Great demonstration of a simple act of local justice between Christians that is now causing that shalom to continue all the way to this day. And if we, just, go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry. Go on. If we just start thinking about, okay, who is right around me in my own personal mission field? Who are the people I meet? Do I even know the name of the person I check out with at Kroger? And just in that simple act of getting to know people, you start to learn about how you can love that neighbor more. And then that leads to other opportunities to continue loving your neighbor in your community. So true. And when you say the word personal mission field, you're uh, touching on something that's very dear to the heart of TM and very much a part of the ethos of the Fellowship of Ialba. Uh, you're listening to the Ialba podcast with your host, TM Moore, and our guest today, Dr. Mark Moland, Associate Professor of History and Political Science at Letourneau University in Longview, Texas. We are talking about seeking justice in our society, what it looks like and how that's an aspect of realizing the presence, promise and power of the kingdom of God. That's what the Fellowship of Alba is all about. And we bring you the Alba podcast and encourage you to visit our website, www.ialbe.org for more information about resources, training and other opportunities and TM, one of the many free resources available on our website is your Bible study newsletter called The Scriptorium, and you've recently been featuring a series, several studies related to the topic of justice. Yeah, in, fa in fact, we just finished going through Deuteronomy chapters 24 through 26. Uh, that download is available on our website, and there are many practical examples of how the law of God does exactly what Mark's been talking about, how it teaches us to relate to our neighbors in such a way as that we seek our neighbor's good, we desire our neighbor's peace, we don't steal from him that which belongs to him, we don't lie to him or deceive him. It's just the very practical, common ways in which love for our neighbor flows through certain rules and protocols of common sense practice, what we would want them to do to, to, to us. And I think that really illustrates well your point, Mark, that, that, that this gets down to our day-to-day our -day experience of how we understand what goodness requires, how we understand what justice is, and how we initiate acts of goodness and justice just to the people around us. Indeed, it does. And, and then when we start drawing out to those larger issues of justice, criminal justice, and, and public policy, we need to think of, okay, how are we loving our neighbor in this specific context? How are we demonstrating care and concern for them and seeking their best? And that is really the rub in most areas of policy. Uh, when I was a cadet at the uh, Coast Guard Academy in the early 90s, one of the uh, issues I struggled with was the area of immigration policy, because that was the beginning of a series of mass exoduses from Haiti. And 
the uh, Bush administration did a, a variety of, of things to try to deter it. And eventually they instituted a policy of a direct repatriation of migrants from, to the island. So when people left in these boats and they were leaving in the hundreds and the thousands, uh, the Coast Guard would pick them up and take them uh, straight back. Uh, as, a, as a student there, I was very incensed by this because this seemed very uncaring. It seemed harsh. I couldn't understand why we as a uh, government would do something like that. And I very thankfully had some professors at the academy who said, hey, why don't you write a paper about this and take a look at you know, why we came to this policy? It's also doubly blessed by the, the fact that there were several uh, senior leaders who had been involved in the operation who are now stationed at the academy as uh, our superintendent and, and other senior leaders. So I had an opportunity to sit down with them and talk face to face about you know, why do, why did we deal with this mass migration when we should be welcoming them all as refugees? When it comes to these big issues of injustice, the bumper stickers and the gut reactions never really get into the details of what's going on with the people involved on the various sides and how to best love them. Because in the reality of the Haitian migration, what was happening is the people who were leaving the island were overloading boats three to four to five times the capacity of the boat. And without some type of direct intervention, most of them would never make it much past Haiti uh, and nevertheless, they'd definitely not make it to the United States on their own. It was also discovered that the, when the United States first started this response, they would pick up the Haitian migrants. And since we didn't have uh, anyone available to assess whether they're refugee or not, they'd take them to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba to be assessed there. Well, when people on the island saw people leave and disappear and not come back, it encouraged more of them to say, hey, we have a chance to possibly get in the United States because this was before everyone had a cell phone. And it was encouraging more and more people to risk their lives. And after a long set of deliberation, the Bush administration at the time said, hey, we should just return them. And before we return them, we'll have someone from the State Department meet them to make sure that we're not returning a refugee. Um, but this is in their best interest as it is in, in the US best interest. And that stopped the, the mass migration you know, until 92 when a, a young governor from Arkansas uh, said, you know, I don't think this is right. I'm going to change the policy. And when Bill Clinton became president, we saw another mass migration start ramping up. Mm, and yeah. when um, President Clinton understood the potential loss of life, which was projected to be in the hundreds of thousands of people, if we allowed migration to continue as he requested, mm -hmm. uh, he upheld the policy of direct repatriation. The reality of national policy is complicated. Well, it's it's awfully tied to political interest. Right. And not to what are the requirements of love. It seems to be, and especially lately, this has become clearer, I think, that right and wrong, good and evil are tied with 
what allows me to gain, possess, and keep political power. And this raises a question that I want to want to ask you about. This whole idea of justice as shalom, which mm-hmm. involves things like what others are due, what others require in the way of love, what creates bonds of forgiveness and, and and the sorts of things that make neighbors of people living in community. It seems to me that you, that that message is first of all one that needs to be proclaimed within the Christian community, but also needs to be sort of t- uh, surfaced outside that community as a kind of topic for discussion. Um, so when you think about, I mean, now you're teaching at Laterno, it's a Christian mm-hmm. university, you're teaching largely Christian students, but you're involved in a larger growing network of people who are in the justice community. Mm-hmm. So talk about how you see salting these ideas of justice as shalom, not just within the Christian community and, and through your students and so forth, but in the larger justice community. How does that work in your mind? Right. Well, I'll start with an experience I had with one of my very first students here. So I, in the first class I taught here at Letourneau was an introduction to criminal justice, the beginning of a four-year degree. And I had one student who came in, he came from a long line of, of law enforcement officials. He sat in the front row, completely ramrod straight with his hands clasped in front of him. Uh, I think in the entire class, he said maybe a dozen words over the course of the semester. At the end of the semester, he walked up and said, this was a very interesting class, shook my hand. Uh, and that was one of the longest conversations we had had. And so he took several classes with me. And one of the things that, that I kept talking about is this idea of you know, seeking the shalom of the community. And that involves getting to know and love your neighbors. About two years after he graduated, I heard a knock at my office door and he came, he came in, he came for a visit. And he said, that crazy idea of yours works. And I said, what, what crazy idea? He says, you know, getting to know people. And I said, what, what, what do you mean? He says, you talk about shalom and you talk about seeking shalom. And, and so I, you know, I, I'm a cop in a, in a community near Houston now. And I, uh, instead of having a meeting with the other officers, I go and I walk through my community and I meet the people. And I talk to the people. I said, that's, that's wonderful. He goes, yeah, and it helped me solve a murder because people came and felt comfortable telling me uh, who was involved with it. I said, that is wonderful news. That's the kind of thing that multiplied into all different sectors of society and all different communities. And that's the sort of thing that can become almost a kind of an infectious, albeit subconscious movement on the part of people. Right. And, you know, with that, when you talk about that broader picture of working with other agencies, working with different groups, you know, one of the key aspects of shalom is being in those relationships you know ultimately right relationships but just having a relationship you know in areas whether it's immigration policy or or counter trafficking i'm often surprised how groups that are doing the same things don't even talk to each other you know here uh, my family and i are involved in uh, in foster care and, and ministry to foster families And one of the organizations that started in Tyler, Texas was called the Fostering Collective. And it was uh, started by two individuals who both uh, found themselves involved in uh, ministries related to uh, adoption and foster care. 
And they realized that it'd be better if they started working together. And so the goal of fostering collective is not just to build up their own ministry, but to start networking people, whether it's networking foster families, networking churches, networking different agencies. So they're all sharing this information about what they're doing so that we can all be better together. So let me throw, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going the, uh, one other thing you, since you brought up law enforcement and, and this student that you had that came from a long line of law enforcement officers, uh, one of the issues I hear related to justice is this matter of sentencing of of people for various crimes and uh perhaps the need for alternative sentencing tm you were with chuck colson in prison fellowship for a number of years that was something that was uh, a big issue for him wasn't it it was he he worked uh, on what he called restorative justice which i think was really just another form of what mark was talking about is what what can we do instead of always feeling like our re, our responsibility in, in in criminal law enforcement is to punish and to demean people what can we do instead to enlist them in their own healing in various ways and thus restore them and the relationship that was broken by their crime and thus the community as a whole and I think that's in many ways, that's a kind of a precursor to what Mark's talking about on a much bigger scale, but also on a much smaller scale uh, as well. And perhaps that grows out of your experience studying with Chuck Colson for uh, a year, Mark. Is that Would that be fair to say? Oh, absolutely would be. Yeah, Chuck was a great influence on me. And you know, when we, we think about sentencing, you know, when people read through the Old Testament law and specifically the punishments for the crimes through modern eyes and modern sensibilities. They say, oh, that's that seems barbaric. This seems awful. Eye for an eye sounds horrible. And yet at the time, God's speaking into that generation. He is working to help them have reasonable consequences for crimes that lead to a restoration of community. There's always this sense in the Old Testament that, you know, whether it is a fine, whether it is um, some type of a harsher physical sentence, afterwards there's this restoration of yeah. the individual back it's, to the it's community. It's that sense of, it, okay, that's all over. That's all done now. We're back to where we started from, that sort of thing. Yeah. Now you have a couple times you've mentioned Neil Planiga's book, uh, A Breviary of Sin, not the way it's supposed to be. Point us to a couple of other things we might read that can put us on this trajectory for thinking about justice as shalom, Mark. Mm. So, you know, in thinking about justice, a good book that I've, I've just started reading is uh, Thaddeus Williams confronting injustice without compromising truth, where uh, he is wrestling uh, primarily with this issue of social justice and how do we think about biblical justice and how do we uh, be in communication with those who are advocating various types of social justice so that we might remain consistent to this biblical vision of justice where we're bringing ourselves back into right relationships with one another in society. Nick Bolterstorff has a book on justice, a few years old now. I don't know if you've read that or, or not, but I find Nick Bolterstorff to be a pretty reliable thinker in the Christian community. 
Uh, he, uh, yes, he has, uh, I've got a couple of his uh, on my shelf back here as well. Uh, the book Church, State, and Public Justice is another one for kind of thinking through, you know, what is our, what is the goal of justice in, uh, in our community and in society? I, um, I also uh, think uh, from a more philosophical perspective, you know, Jay Budashevsky's What We Can't Not Know, where he's talking about a natural law argument yeah, yeah, for the yeah. Ten Commandments, really helps us give this broad idea of how do we bring common concepts of justice and right relationship back into our dialogue with each other. Yeah, good point. Good point. A big, a big topic that we'll need to revisit again sometime soon, but it's uh, been good to talk today with Dr. Mark Moland, Associate Press Professor of History and Political Science at Laterno University in Longview, Texas, here on the ILBA podcast with your host, T.M. Moore. Uh, we've already mentioned our website, www.ailbe.org, where you can download many free resources for personal and group use, and also check out our bookstore with books by T.M. Moore and others. But uh, Mark, how can folks find out about your work and about Laterno University? Uh, sure, you can uh, reach me best through Laterno University's uh, webpage. Uh, I have also uh, written articles uh, over the years at World Magazine. And the best way to reach me uh, directly would be through my Laterno email, uh, markmoland at laterno.letu.edu. L-E-T-U dot E-D-U. Yes. Good to have you with us today, Mark. I appreciate it. I hope we can come back and talk about this as your own program and your faculty and your movement begins to gain steam. We can talk about this some more and we'll have lots of practical examples we can talk about as well. Great. I look forward to it, T.M. Right. Indeed. Be sure to check out the work on justice that Dr. Mark Molin is involved with at Laterno University. And thanks for listening today to the ALBA podcast. Keep striving to live as an ambassador of the King in all the places he sends you. Goodbye for now.